you will find a Bible and open to 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, or we could say David and Saul. 1 Samuel 17. Tonight we come to what must be, by all accounts, one of the best-known stories from the Bible in all of the world. It's one of the few stories in the Bible that the world actually seems to like, right? We hear about this in movies, and you can hear it watching secular news and all sorts of things. It's a, it's a story, the story of David and Goliath, that the culture has, in a sense, adopted. They've adopted this sort of stock phrase that whenever the little guy has to take on the big bad guy. And the world suggests that we see David and Goliath and the story of David and Goliath play out in sports or in politics or in business or maybe in relationships or all, all sorts of ways, this, this David and Goliath dynamic. And if you've read the story, it's easy to see why it's so popular. It has all of the elements of a good underdog story, right? It's got drama and excitement and beheading, right? If you are a guy, right? And, and it's got an evil foe and this resourceful little guy. And if you notice, one of the reasons I love the story is there is a lot of cheese in 1 Samuel 17. Yeah, read, read closely, guys. Ten types of cheese. We love underdog stories and we love to identify with the hero, who by his own ingenuity and courage overcomes the great obstacles in life. And so we might teach our kids from 1 Samuel 17 how to slay their giants with the five smooth stones of courage and self-esteem and resourcefulness and blah, 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 right? Or maybe we put a little bit more of Jesus into it. Maybe we say, you know, if you trust God, you can do anything. You can even face your giants, but we should probably ask when we come to the text, what is the point of the text? What is the point of this text? I found that as a general rule of thumb, that if we find a passage of scripture that the world likes, and if we like it for the same reasons, we're probably on shaky ground, right? We should probably pause and think about it for a little bit more time. So I want to go ahead and suggest to you at the very beginning that most of the Christian treatment of this text can be uh, off kilter. Um, it has been my experience that we often misunderstand and misuse this passage like many of the great narratives of the Bible. And so we are going to uh, spend quite a bit of time on this, not because of that reason, but because there's 58 verses in this chapter and it's so prominent, right? We can't help but notice the prominence of this passage. And we also notice its length, right? I was surprised when I came to this. I've read this several times in the last year, but when I came, I knew, I knew David and Goliath was coming up in 17, but I was surprised when I saw how long it was, right? It takes like 12 minutes to read, um, to read it out loud. There's 58 verses packed with all sorts of small details, like, like cheese, right? And what's interesting, only eight verses in this passage are dedicated to the actual battle. Eight out of 58 verses. And only two verses describe the action. So, 
If we want to be good students, decent students of God's word, then we've got to figure out what to do with all these details. We need to let the details slow us down so we can study the passage more carefully. And we really need to pay attention to the literary devices that are used in this passage. I'm going to talk about this for a moment because there are lots of literary devices that are used in this particular passage, right? Now, this may take you back to ninth grade high school English class where if you were like me, you got squirted by your teacher for falling asleep with a water gun, right? It was not interesting to me then, but I didn't know that it was going to help me read the Bible better, and I I don't think I cared then. But we need to think a little bit about literary devices because there's lots that's going on here. Think about it like this. When you read Old Testament narrative... It is very different than, for example, Paul's letters to the churches, right? In in the Pauline letters, Paul makes very very plain, (laughs) as I say that, I think some of them are not very plain, but he (laughs) he makes very direct propositional statements about truth, right? Well, narratives are not like that at all. And we get into trouble if we try to interpret the narratives like we interpret Paul, right? Narratives, they tell us a story. And stories have, they have different characters and they have different settings and they have different problems and there's different reactions to those different problems. And particularly in biblical narrative, we see how God interacts with the story. And so that's what we have to pay attention to. And we also have to remember, I think this didn't click for me until the last 10 years or so, but we have to remember that there is an author of every book that organizes material in a specific way. So we have to pay attention to how the author, inspired by God, organizes the passage. He, he had to make decisions about what to include. Some authors somewhere decided we needed to know what type of food David was going to bring to his brothers, right? That's in the text, right? Inspired by God. I don't have a great point about cheese. I just thought it was interesting. So don't, if you're really excited about uh, some spiritual meaning for cheese, I don't have it. It just, cheese is good. There you go. Yep. Right. But so, so the point is that we have, to, we have to remember that there's an author that organized all this and, and put the story together to make a point. So we have to be really careful. The main thing that we're doing when we're studying a passage from the Bible is not just asking what lessons could we learn, right? We could learn all sorts of things. God wants you to go buy a lot of cheese tonight, right? Somebody somewhere has probably said that from a pulpit about 1 Samuel 17. I don't think that's the point the author had in mind, right? We need to figure out what does the author, inspired by God, want to show us? What does he want to, to teach us? Now, one of the main ways that the Old Testament makes its point is by using comparison and contrasting, right? Contrasts especially. And this is what secular authors do. This is what any good author does with with a good story, right? There's tension by putting two different things up against each other to make a point. And so authors will highlight their point with extreme opposites. Keep that in mind that is big in, is big all throughout Samuel, but is especially big in the chapter tonight. But there's another literary device that I want to make you aware of that you may not be as familiar with, and it's what theologians call a type, okay? Type. If you like big words, it's a big word, but it's only got four letters, right? It's a a packed 
It's a packed idea. If a type is, uh, it's, think of it in terms as a, a pattern that unfolds gradually and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it unfolds. It's a, it, it's a pattern that unfolds in the Bible and it has symbolic meaning. Types are, uh, it's a form of foreshadowing. But it's perhaps a little bit more nuanced. They have a lot of anticipation and they're, they're growing. So here, here's an example. For example, the reason I'm saying this is because you will not track much of the sermon if you don't understand what a type is and how it works, okay? So, for example, Pharaoh tried to kill baby Moses. And then Herod tried to kill baby Jesus, right? Okay, that, that makes sense. Both of them were saved, Here's another way this works. Moses and his parents were strangers in Egypt. And Jesus and his parents were strangers in the land of Egypt. Moses went up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and received God's law. And then Jesus went up on a mountain and taught God's law, right? The Sermon on the Mount. So we could go on and on. These similarities between Jesus and Moses, those are not just a coincidence, which means that they're inspired and they have a point, Okay, so that's just an example of how this works. They are, types are carefully orchestrated by God. And they're included in his inspired word to teach us about his plan. But here's really one of the big things they're designed to do. Magnify Christ. Types are always pointing in some way to Christ and what he has done. They find their fulfillment in Christ. So, So types help us appreciate Christ more, right? It helps our cross get bigger. Well, the story of David and Goliath is full of devices like these. Comparison and contrasting, symbols, types, foreshadowing, all written down for us and we can read them and think about them together. Now, the point of this is not for you to get a self-esteem boost. You probably, I hope, will leave with lower self-esteem than when you had when you come in, right? That's what God's word does. It, It humbles us. The point is not just to give us a self-esteem boost before we take the field against a superior football team, but to help us understand God, especially as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So all that to say, I think we need to take our cue from the text and, and slow down a little bit. If the author decides to spend a dozen verses talking about armor, which he does, more than any other place in the Bible, then we're going to assume that that's for a reason. Okay? Now, we have to be careful when we interpret texts like these. Maybe you've noticed this in your reading in the Bible and when you're talking with friends that are serious students or maybe in Sunday school, whatever it is. But, okay, so we know that there's types and that there's symbols and there's foreshadowing. But we have to be careful. We don't want to fly by it too fast. Yes, I believe that David is the great giant slayer, and he is a type of Christ. He anticipates Christ who defeats and slays Satan. Okay? If you haven't heard that before, get ready. we got lots more of that, right? That, that David is a mini-Jesus. He is anticipating Jesus who destroys the dragon. But David is also a real person. And these events actually happened to him, and we can learn a lot from David. When the author of 1 Samuel wrote 1 Samuel, they did not know how this was going to all play out in the Gospels uh, hundreds of years later. So this is what I like to call the near meaning, 
Okay, there's a near meaning and there's a far meaning. So, for example, we can learn from David how to face giant difficulties, right? That is a near meaning of the text. We're not going to skip that, right? That's a near meaning. But we can also see Christ in 1 Samuel 17. Christ is in this story. He is in the story of David, and that has us look ahead to how Jesus slew the giant of sin for us. That is a far meaning. Okay, do you see? A near meaning and a far meaning. Both matter, both edify, and both are exciting, and there's lots of that in this text. So this story, we're going to spend, I think we're going to spend a couple weeks on this chapter. First of all, it's 58 verses. It would take too long to even read it all here. But there's so much here. And so we're going to, we're going to spend time in it and let it unfold before us. And I think, I pray that we're going to make a lot of discoveries as we go along. But I don't want to make you wait until the end to get the main point, right? I'm not going to leave you uh, in suspense on the big point. Normally when I preach, you'll hear me say, here's what the main idea of the passage is. We'll start there because I want to be clear. So that's sort of what I'm doing tonight. But let's do it in terms of there's a far meaning and there's a near meaning. Okay? So the, the big far meaning is this. The story of David and Goliath reveals how Israel failed to trust God. And so they need someone to save them. A savior. Ultimately, that Savior is Jesus, the shepherd king, son of David, who defeated sin for his people on the cross. Okay, that's the far meaning. But the near meaning is something like this. The story of David is also filled with a lot of lessons of great, of what sort of great things God's people, who when they are filled with the Spirit and full of faith and full of zeal for God, what they can accomplish. Okay, I'll read that again because I was wordy. It's full of lessons of what great things God's people can do when they're filled with the Spirit and full of zeal for God. Okay, so let's now, with all that being said, let's look at this passage. We're going to do about 30 verses tonight. So look down, 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 30. I hope I can remember how to pronounce these words in verse 1. Okay. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamon. And Saul, the men of Israel, were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, or scales, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he shouted out to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out and drawn up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
And the Philistine said, verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem of Judea, of Judah, named Jesse, who, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. 13. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Sam, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who, who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king, he will enrich the man who kills him with the great riches and will give his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David, verse 26, said to the men who stood by him, Well, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. This is God's inerrant, inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would now open our eyes to understand it, and would you by, our, by your spirit apply it to our hearts and lives. Father, I need you, and so I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Just let your word remain in our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so God's people, the Israelites, are now facing another problem. It's not just a little problem. It is a giant problem. See that? There's lots of that. One that threatens, it's a problem that threatens their entire existence as a nation. 
Israel and the Philistines are now encamped against each other on opposing hills. I've seen a picture of what this looks like. And it's a very clear two medium-sized hills and a flat area right in between them. The Philistine army had now made their way back into Judah, which remember is the promised land. Apparently, the land flowing with milk and honey also has giants. Not only are they facing a Philistine army, which is famous for its um, technology and its uh, military advancement and its ruthless tactics, but they also had a champion. Verse 4 tells us about the famous Goliath. Nine feet, six inches tall. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the tallest man that we know of was a man by the name of Robert Wadlow. In 1940, he was 8 feet 11 inches tall. The tallest man alive now, uh, or recently, is 8 feet 5 inches tall. So we know you can grow him big, um, but Goliath was, was bigger. And there's a sense where I think that we could say, even though we don't know how tall every man has ever been, but there's a sense for for the purposes of this text that we could say that Goliath is the tallest man that the world has ever known. And we have an incredible amount of detail about his armor. Did you notice that? At first glance, it seems that this is simply because the author is impressed with how big it is, right? And that's true. It's impressive. Not only is Goliath's size imposing, but his equipment is imposing as well. He has a helmet of bronze. The text says he has a coat of mail, right? It weighs 126 pounds. Do you know how much 126 pounds is, right? Like that's in- it's incredible. Mail, you know, is really tightly woven together metal. The literal word here is that this is a coat of scales, We'll come back to that in a moment. He has bronze armor on his legs. He has a massive sword or a javelin. His spear is so big that its head weighed 15 pounds. I have a 15-pound dumbbell at my house. No jokes. Don't laugh, right? And I went and I picked it up this afternoon. I was like trying to imagine what it would be like to throw it. I'm like, it's heavy. I don't think I could throw this thing very far, right? The head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. He had a shield that was so big that it required a whole person just to carry it. He had a shield bearer, right? And if you think about this, all of this, this is not in the day of tanks. This is in the day of where there's almost no armor, right? Israel, we don't think, had any armor, So this is a guy literally armed, well not literally armed to the tooth, but almost armed to the tooth, and he was very impressive. Goliath is, the text makes very clear, the very essence of military power. The sight of him was awesome and psychologically overwhelming, and he's angry. It's not just that he's big, it's not just that he's well armed, he is angry. Day after day, Goliath mocked and taunted Israel. He offered a one-on-one fight to the death, winner take all. Don't ever tell me the Bible is boring. Don't want to hear it, right? A fight to the death, one-on-one, winner take all offer, right? Each would fight on behalf of its respective army, right? Look back down in verse 8. We read this. Uh, He shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you not drawn out in battle? Am I not... uh, Let's see, I'm... Okay, yeah. Uh, Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve and serve us, right? But not only that, but Goliath is a trash 
talker. <laughs> if you're that big and you got that much armor, you can probably say whatever you want to say. Day after day, he mocked Israel. And he mocked their king, and by default, he mocked their God. Verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Verse 8, am I not a Philistine, and are you not a servant of Saul? Notice, who does he specifically call out? Saul, right? So verse 11 is understandable. It's an important verse for us. Look down at verse 11. So when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, so let's remember the context here. God has settled his people in the land that is called the promised land. And he's given them the promise, the covenant promise, that if they obey, then all will go well for them. But as we know, the nation of Israel and its king have been continually rebelling against the Lord. We've chronicled in 1 Samuel so far how they have rejected uh, God as their king and chosen for themselves a king like the nations. But the problem, well, they got a king like the nations. The problem is he's too much like the nations. Saul is tall. He is physically attractive, but he disobeys God. He's beautiful on the outside and he's wicked on the inside. And he depends way too much on his own strength and ingenuity. Now, they have a king, but as we saw last week and in recent chapters, this king has been abandoned by God. And now, without the Spirit, we're seeing armies and enemies come back into the promised land. Now, as we read all this carefully, this should sound strangely familiar. You've got to read your Bible a lot to pick up on these things. Isn't there another time when Israel was afraid of giants? You remember? Do you remember Numbers 13? When the Lord brought Israel to the edge of the land of milk and honey and they sent out 12 spies? And what happened? They came back and what did they say? There's giants everywhere, right? There's lots of good grapes and it's beautiful and there's all this cool stuff just like God said, but it's full of giants. And they weren't exaggerating. What they probably saw were the biblical people of the, I get this pronunciation wrong, the Nephilim, I think, which is this famous line of giants, which is chronicled in several places in the Old Testament. It's very fascinating. I don't have all the answers, but they were big, giant people, okay? And the Lord had promised that he was going to give the promised land, even though it was filled with giant, filled, full, of, full of giants and grapes, he was going to give it to them. But what happened? Out of the 12 that went out, only 10 believed. Or t only two believed. 10 didn't believe. Caleb and Joshua believed. They said, the Lord will give it to us. But the rest of Israel was too afraid of giants. So what happened? If you go back and read Numbers 13, this will make you tremble. God was so angry that they were afraid of giants that he wanted to wipe them out and start over. This happens several times, right? He, because of their fear of giants, he wanted to kill them all and start over. But what happened? Moses did what he did multiple times. He interceded. He pleaded with God to spare them. And if you notice, he did, he, his argument is, what will the nations think of you if they see that you've destroyed this people that you've rescued, right? He's arguing with God and his, his argument is, do it for the sake of your fame. Do it for your glory. Numbers 14, 15, and 16 say this. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say... 
Is it because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them? It's, the, it's for this reason that he killed them in the wilderness. Okay, store that away, all right? But God had compassion on them, and so what did he do? He heard the intercession of Moses, but then he made them, what was their punishment? They were to wander in the wilderness for how long? Forty years, until the entire generation died off. And after 40 years, under Joshua, the Lord drove the nations out of the promised land, including the giants. They were sent to three Philistine villages. Okay, so so just think about it. This is not an accident. Here we have Israel. Because of their sin, they, and they are watching the conquest be undone. It's rolling back. The, the land that they have taken by promise is now giving, being threatened and given up. It is like Israel is back in the wilderness. With a king who has been left by God's spirit and abandoned by God, standing on the edge of the land, afraid of giants. It's Canaan all over again. Israel isn't supposed to be afraid of giants. They are supposed to rule giants. They're supposed to kill giants. And yet here they are, and it's like one of those giants returned. And it's the biggest one of all of them. I won't go into it tonight, but there's a lot of... It gives us information about where Goliath is from, which is tracing it back, showing, making this connection of what is going on in these two texts. So Goliath has returned, and the text suggests that this giant is even worse Back in verses 5 through 7, where the author talks so much about this armor, look down at verse 5. I don't know what translation you have, um, but look what it says about his armor. The literal, the, the, the Hebrew word there is, we think of it in terms of mail, a coat of mail, but the word there is scales. It, it literally says he had scale armor. Goliath has scales. He's presented to us as a snake, as a dragon. In this story, Goliath represents so much more than just a big, tall, strong guy. He is the very embodiment, I believe, of satanic oppression against God. He is the embodiment of evil. He represents all that is opposed to God. A.W. Pink says it like this. He says, Goliath pictures to us the great enemy of God and man the devil. He seeks to terrify and to bring into captivity those who bear the name of the Lord. But wait a minute. Doesn't Israel have a giant? Don't they have their own giant? What about Saul? The text goes out of the way to say Saul is tall. He was a head and shoulders above the rest. And not only that, but they wanted a king who did what? led the people into battle, right? So they got a tall guy, and his whole job is to lead people into battle. And I think here's what's even more amazing. He's actually done it before. This blew my mind. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Saul's very first test as king, his military test as king, was against the Amorites. And he defeated, by God's help, King Nahash. Do you know what Nahash means? Serpent. I mean, is this... Is this, can't make this stuff up. That's what the king is supposed to do. The king of Israel is to slay giant serpents. Even Goliath calls Saul out by name. Where is your giant Saul? Verse 8. Where do we see Saul? Do you remember Saul's inauguration day? They couldn't find him. What was he doing? 
He was hiding in the baggage. Good old Saul, hanging back with the baggage. Now, before you're too hard on Saul, ask yourself, where would you be in this? Verse 11 says that Saul and all of Israel was afraid. Where would you be? Now, there's one more thing to notice. How long did Israel suffer the taunt of Goliath? Forty days. Man, that sounds interesting. Verse 16, For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Forty days. Are you kidding me? Does Goliath read the Bible? Does he know about this pattern? How many years did the Lord bring Israel into the wilderness? Forty years. Forty years the Lord tested Israel. Why? Because they were afraid of giants. We see this in other ways. How many days was Noah tested on the ark? Forty. How many days was Jesus tested or tempted in the wilderness? Forty. There's no coincidence. Here is Israel standing again on the edge of the promised land, facing a giant serpent, and what do they do? They failed. They failed the test. They had 40 days. Unlike Jesus, they failed the test. Everyone is afraid. The men of Israel are afraid. David's brothers are afraid. Saul is definitely afraid. I just picture him getting him a manicure somewhere. Like I just want to think of Saul. Right? This failed king is so cowardly and so uninspiring that during Israel's most important time of testing, he has to bribe people to fight for him right? Verses 25 through 27. And it still doesn't even work. Saul is not even effective enough to bribe people to obey him. I mean, it is over and over again, we're seeing how ineffective he is. Remember the contrast and the comparison. Over and over again, we hear in this text about how afraid everyone is. And then in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Okay, so here's kind of one of the big points. During 40 days, during this 40 days of testing, Israel and Israel's king failed to trust the Lord. We see them cowering in humiliation. Let's, let's pause and think about some application for a moment. Fear is always the product of weak or absent faith. Always. Goliath's challenge to Israel in verse 8 was really a challenge a theological challenge. He was challenging their faith in God. You could paraphrase, paraphrase Goliath's taunt like this. Am I not a pagan, God-hating Philistine? Then why won't any of your men of the living God fight me? You must really not even believe in him at all. In fact, you must believe that a nine-foot warrior with some big sword is actually stronger than your living God when it comes to real battle. Wow. Is this not how Satan mocks us in every difficult circumstance? It's the essence of all of temptation. Dare I say spiritual warfare. When things are hard, when your back is up against the wall, will you trust God or not? I don't care what you say in Sunday school. When it's hard, when you're tempted, will you trust God or not? Lurking behind Goliath is the very same devil that lurks behind every temptation that you and I face. We know the serpent. We're not ignorant of his devices. He has one tactic. He employs it a zillion different ways. One tactic. 
to get you to doubt the Word of God. Do you remember it at the beginning? Did God really say that you can't eat from that tree? Right? He used a similar tactic even with Jesus. What you say that you believe in Sunday school and what you post on Facebook doesn't mean a hoot if you don't act on it in the midst of real-life temptation. If you say that you believe that God will take, ter- take care of you, then why are you anxious about your job? How about when you receive that terrifying medical diagnosis? What do you believe about your God then? The world stand ba- stands back and mocks us as we live like the world in the face of difficulties. Friends, our lives are filled with these Goliath-like tests because the Lord wants to know, will you trust him or not? Will you trust him or not? You say you know him and, your pa- and his power, but do you act as if you know him? So here we are with Israel and her tall king, once again failing the test because they're afraid of giants in the land. And everyone is afraid. Almost everyone. Faced with another giant from Gath, Israel needs another Joshua or another Caleb. Look down at verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem in Judea named Jesse. All of a sudden, David bursts on the scene. Once again, we're reminded that he's the youngest and that he's the smallest, but that doesn't matter because David is the only one who is confident that God's people can once again defeat giants. Now, last chapter, we just met David, all right, for the first time. He was secretly anointed king in waiting. And after hearing all of the terrifying details of this serpent-like giant, it's like David's bio is, a fre- is like a breath of fresh air. It sounds very domestic and very, very safe, right? But it is not impressive. It does not sound like a military biography, right? The shepherd from Bethlehem is the youngest of eight, and he has been splitting his time taking care of sheep and playing music for, the, for disturbed King Saul. All right, that's his bio. David is a, and not only is he the shepherd king boy, but he's now the shepherd king Aaron boy, the cheese boy. Verse 17, his father sends him with food to his three oldest brothers who are fighting for Saul, right? And take note of who's mentioned here. The oldest brother, Eliab. Do you remember what happened with Eliab in chapter 16? He was one, the first one, the oldest brother who was already rejected by God. He is the object lesson for man does not look, man looks at the outward appearance, but God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, right? He is that guy rejected by God as the next king. And so when David shows up on the battle lines, he, he learns about the situation. But first we have these details about how David manages his baggage, right? I cannot help but wonder why the author would include details about this. Verse 20, David leaves his sheep. Verse 22, he leaves his baggage with the keeper of the baggage. I can, I just, almost, I can see him like just saying, hey, Saul, hold my sheep, right? It's, it's like the picture we have. Already we are getting hints of the fact that David is nothing like this King Saul. Saul hides in the baggage to avoid a fight. David leaves the baggage and goes looking for the fight. So out on the front lines, his brothers are not fighting. 
In fact, verse 11 says they are dismayed and terrified, right? No medals being given out here. And while he's out there, that's when he first hears and sees Goliath for the first time in verse 23. He saw and heard Goliath, and surely, like everyone else, he was initially overwhelmed, right? God's faith in God does not mean that we're not unmoved by terrifying circumstances, but it means we have a bottom. So in verses 25 through 27, David discovers that Saul has promised to reward the one who defeats Goliath, right? Saul does what Hollywood does. He says, well, we need a guy, so let's figure, let's put some money and a woman in there, and let's throw in tax-free, and you know, we'll, surely we'll get somebody, right? Freedom from taxes. And it's interesting because this reward that Saul is offering is a very princely reward. It's very kingly. Great wealth, membership in the royal family by marriage, freedom from taxes and all normal civic duties. Sounds like the next king, doesn't it? But to David's dismay, no one has taken the challenge. Once again, Saul is, contrast, is being contrasted to David. King Saul, not only does he not have the courage, but he doesn't have any resources to fight Goliath himself. And he can't even bribe or command someone else to do it for him. It is the new low point for Saul. It's the low water mark. He cannot be any more of a failure than he is right now. Friends, disobedience will lead to problems in your life, right? All because Saul and all of Israel lacked faith in God. Now, again, I don't think anybody in Israel denied God's existence, right? They just didn't have any confidence that his power applied to real problems. But here comes David. When David sees and hears the problem, he's indignant and compelled to act. But he frames the problem very differently, right? There's, look down at verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you hear what he did? David brought theology into his circumstances. He brought God into his circumstances on Tuesday afternoon at 1 o'clock. What he says he believes about God affected the decisions that he made. To David, Goliath was not just a threat to his personal safety or his family's farm and security. Goliath was a threat to the glory of God. He was blaspheming the living God. And David was full of zeal for the name of the Lord. There'll be more on that later. But do not move on without asking. When you find yourself facing giant problems, how quick are you to bring God into the situation? I mean, practically, practically, how much power do you attribute to him? Functionally, how big is your God? Faith in God changes everything. It changes everything. When God is on your side, as Paul says in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? I don't care how tall you are, how cool your armor is. I've got the living God. So many of us sing like Christians on Sunday and then live like atheists on Tuesday, especially when they're suffering. Verses 28 and 30 are often left out in most tellings of the story. David is asking questions, considering fighting Goliath, and uh, is, which is clear, and his brother, Eliab, is indignant. 
Verse 28 shows he was angry and condescending. Man, he even takes a big brother kind of stab. You see this? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness, right? Like, you don't, you're a shepherd and you don't have many sheep, right? Get it together, David. Eliab, the brother, is, this is so ironic. He's judging circumstances. All of Israel is standing there judging the circumstance of Goliath only by what they see. They're ignoring the God, the, the, the Lord of hosts who they cannot see, and they're judging by what they can see. Remember, man looks at the outward appearance, but not God, right? But what does Eliab do? He is judging all the circumstances purely based on what he can see, right? Goliath is big and David is small, so go back home, little boy, and play with the sheep. But what does he do? He actually presumes to know David's heart. Do you see that? Verse 28. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. <laughs> Do you see how thick the author is laying on the irony here? Right, we just heard last chapter about how man looks at our appearance and God doesn't. He looks at the heart. And here's Eliab, the one who is passed over as king. And he is acting only on outward appearance. And he's claiming to know the heart. <laughs> and he's totally wrong. Appearances, friends, this is a good place for us to pause again. Appearances may threaten to undo your faith. The circumstances in your life may make it look like there's no way that God can come through in this circumstance. He may come through, but you're going to be bloodied and battered and barely alive afterwards. Right? That, that may be what we're tempted to think. But with God, things are not what they seem to be. They're not what you can only see with the naked eye. Circumstances and appearances are a bad way to measure up the character of a man. And circumstances and appearances are a bad way to measure the character of God. Just because you can't understand God's work in your life, it does not mean that you can't trust Him. And just because he's making you wait for a very long time, it doesn't mean that he's abandoned you. And it doesn't mean that he's not working. And it doesn't mean that he's not going to bring you into the promised land. Do you see what all is happening in this text? Do you see what's happening with Eliab? David is the object of his brother's scorn. And so he joins the long line of righteous men who are despised by their brothers. Think of Joseph, the youngest son of Jacob, who was picked to be a ruler from among his brothers and suffered unjustly. I think most of all of Christ, who was despised and mocked and abandoned by his brothers. 1 John 1 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If you were to be like Israel... And judge Jesus by external appearances, you would have mocked him too. I would have mocked him too. But as it says in Psalm 119, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Church, our constant lack of faith, our failure to trust God, Our tendency to trust only what we can see is sin. It mocks God. It says that our God is small and that our circumstances are bigger than the living God. It leaves us standing condemned in sin.
What's that mean? It means we need a savior. We need a savior. Who do you identify with in this story? So often we are like, yeah, David, right? I identify with David. I would have been, man, I would have been out there. I would have taken the stone, man. Just think about how, how efficient stones are. They're quicker. It's like having a gun. I've heard, all this, I've heard all sorts of crazy stuff about this story, right? So often we identify with David, the hero. No, we're Israel. We're Saul. We're Eliab, right? We are the sinners, which means that we need a savior. We need a David from Bethlehem to sacrifice himself, to place himself in danger, to pay for our unbelief, and then ultimately slay the giant dragon. And he's coming, isn't he? I hope you'll join us next week as we continue in the story of David and Goliath. Let's pray. Father, I can't wait to see you. Lord, I pray that as we've seen you in your word, that we would be transformed. I pray that as we leave tonight, that we would not walk out of here confident in what we can do if we show determination and courage, but humbled that we need Jesus. Father, I pray that we would leave with new joy and new confidence in you as we face our difficulties. Give us faith to honor you even as we face giants. And we will eagerly await the day when you will slay once for all that great dragon. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.